Germany's social market economy combined free markets with a strong welfare state. It becomes the social democratic party. Yes, we can. Education, education, and education. Hello and welcome to the Centre Think Tanks podcast, the Centrist podcast. As always, I'm your host, Will Barber-Taylor. And in this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Wendy Chamberlain, the MP for North East Fife, Chief Whip of the Liberal Democrats and a Deputy Leader of the Scottish Liberal Democrats. Welcome to the podcast, Wendy. Hi, Will. Nice to be here. It's great to have you on. Now, the first question um, that I'd like to ask is in relation to the justice system in Scotland. Um, do you think that the justice system in Scotland, and more widely within the UK, should move towards a focus on rehabilitating, uh, rehabilitating prisoners? And how best do you think that this can be achieved in, in, in terms of policy, in terms of convincing the public? Yeah, uh, th thanks, Will. Um, I think the first thing I should say is, is I've got direct experience of the justice system from my time as a police officer. I served as a police officer in Lothian and Borders Police between 1999 and 2011. So I've seen the start of the criminal justice process. So, you know, I think what I would say is, is when we talk about rehabilitation, it's easier for people on the right to to say that that means that we are we are soft on mm -hmm. on crime and and I would argue that um, given my previous roles that's uh, absolutely uh, not the case. But yeah, I think uh, rehabilitation is an important thing for a number of of reasons. Um, there are some criminals who will never be released from prison and nor based on the gravity of their crimes should they be for. But when you actually look at rehab, uh, from a rehabilitation perspective, it makes sense on so many levels. It makes sense from a, a perspective of we should hope that people um, following a, a period uh, in prison or indeed um, a, a sentence which has not involved prison, that they want to be rehabilitated into communities and make uh, a contribution in future. That makes sense from an, an economic uh, perspective. But also, I think just from a very general perspective, if we think just about, you know, prison or criminal justice only being about punishment, I don't think we then they end up in a position where that's healthy for uh, healthy for society. So um, I think the economic cost we estimate in Scotland is about three billion a year um, in terms of if we were moving to rehabilitation, what that would potentially uh, save the Scottish uh, economy. I worked as a period as well for a short time. I was worked for a local college, Fife College, which is one of the uh, national providers to the Scottish Prison Service of, of training and skills. We don't want people sitting in, in prisons and that was one of the challenges during COVID with nothing to do. We want them to be learning the skills that will help them um, contribute to the economy going forward. And actually just a few weeks ago I met with a charity called primarily focused on veterans uh, one one um, uh, street uh, pavement away. Um, but you know actually I think we do need to be or uh, work with our employers to make them more open to recruiting uh, ex-offenders because and people need to have the opportunity to start again. And that makes uh, sense from a number uh, of, of um, perspectives. But I do think that one of the other things that we need to look at is people being incarcerated for very short periods of time and how much benefit there is to victims of crime uh, to society and to the offenders themselves. And we have seen an increasing number of people being held uh, in prison 
uh, who um, you know remand before trial. And in fact, uh, colleagues in, in the Scottish Liberal Democrats, they did an FOI earlier this year to say that those numbers have increased 40% in the last three years. And we know there are huge challenges and pressures on the criminal justice system. That's not potentially going to help anyone, and particularly victims of crime, if people are staying on remand for long periods before those cases come to court. Mm -hmm, absolutely. And um, just in terms of um, policing in Scotland, policing in Scotland is quite um, different to the rest of the um, UK, isn't it, in terms of Police Scotland being one um, large police force, the second largest police force in the UK, whereas in um, England and, and, and Wales, there are obviously uh, police forces which are, um, you know, the, the, the Met, Lancashire Police, etc., all, all different sort of types of um, forces of varying degrees of size. Do you think that having one um, force like Police Scotland has made policing in Scotland more effective? And, and do you think that that's something that the rest of the UK could learn from? Or, or do you think that there are uh, an equal amount of um, challenges and, and problems that come from having a, a, a police force that is so, effectively just yeah. one? So, well, as you would expect me as a Liberal Democrat, it's not sort of one or the other. So mm -hmm. I served in one of Scotland's eight forces. Mm -hmm. um, I was not supportive of a move to a single force. And the reason for that is because actually, when we think about the governance, I've always thought of policing as a sort of three-legged stool where you had central government, local government, and the chief constable. And there's no doubt, and we've seen that through some of the challenges in relation to uh, the SPA, um, who oversee Police Scotland, that that removal of one of those legs has made things, I think, from a governance perspective, uh, more challenging. And in fact, uh, one of the previous chairs of the, of the SP, uh, SPA um, said that the, the structures basically just couldn't uh, uh, work. But I would also uh, say that there has absolutely been um, improvements in reduce, you know, reducing to one force from the perspective of processes, simplicity. I'm just on Scottish Affairs Committee. We've just done a short couple of evidence sessions in relation to firearms licensing. Um, as a result of the tragic shooting in uh, Sky a couple of months ago. And what was very clear about that is that centralised firearms licensing process with some degrees of automation has shown that uh, Police Scotland is, improved, is, is performing much better than other parts of the UK. I have to say, I think 43 forces in England and Wales is... is <laughs> even before you add the politicisation through police and crime commissioners, is nuts, quite frankly. Mm. Uh, you don't get the benefit of economies of scale. The government talk about county line drug, drugs, etc. But, um, uh, you know, for me, uh, there needs to be, or, or there should be, um, a proper rationalisation of force in England. Indeed, the police services, I think, um, I've heard previous chief constables before uh, call, call for that. I think the other thing, um, you know, it would be remiss to talk about policing without referring to where the Met has found itself uh, in recent uh, years and months. And I think there is a genuine question about the remit of the Met, particularly with some of the national counter-terrorism policing responsibilities that it has. We have a national crime agency. I think there is a question to be asked about whether some of those responsibilities would better sit within um, that agency as opposed to the Metropolitan Police. But I think the final aspect for me is about there is clearly um, a need for you know leadership within the police the police police service and mm -hmm. it's funny I mean I felt very strongly when I was a, a you know a police officer that a police constable that you join as a police constable and and you go up uh, through the ranks so you've got a real understanding of uh, of the pressures of operational officers but then 
I do think there's a, a balance to be struck because that means that you're part of a culture for a long period of time. And clearly what we've seen in relation to racism, misogyny allegations, all those things that have happened is that that culture, um, if not regulated properly, uh, can be very damaging. And so um, I, I would be more open to thinking about the different ways that we recruit people in police uh, leadership, um, uh, 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 police leadership positions. And just fundamentally, I think we should always be asking the question of, do we need warranted policing powers to carry out different uh, roles? And there's absolutely no doubt that, um, you know, the financial crisis in 2008, there were forces that obviously made redundancies voluntary to, to police mm -hmm. staff. But as a result, we've got police officers who, you know, are not employees that are appointed who are potentially doing roles that would be better done uh, by somebody um, not wearing a uniform. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, just thinking in terms of the um, tax powers um, in Scotland, do you think that Scotland should have further powers to raise tax revenue? And if so, what tax powers would you like to see devolved to the Scottish Government? So I think the challenge for me is around what are the Scottish Government doing with the powers that they already have? I mean, I'm not somebody who feels particularly comfortable as a pro-UK MP or an MP representing a, a UK party of being described as a unionist. I would describe myself a, 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 as a federalist. But, mm -hmm. but for me, you know, one of the reasons why we are potentially seeing some of the budgetary cuts that we are seeing at the Scottish Government uh, are, are going to be implementing. Yes, you know, what has happened from a UK perspective, uh, trust, the failure of trustonomics is part of that. But there is also no doubt that for a significant period of time, Scottish productivity uh, has lagged the rest of the UK. So which what that means is the tax powers that Scotland already has, we are not recouping or making the tax, you know, the tax income that we should be making with the powers that, that we have. And so the tax rises that we have seen, so, you know, higher rate taxpayers in Scotland pay 46 uh, pence. Um, that is, you know, that is actually not the issue for me. The issue is, is those taxes being set to fill a fiscal black hole that productivity gains should should actually be, be delivering. Mm -hmm. And I also think that council tax reform is something that the SNP called for before they were elected in 2007, and they've been in power since then. Why have they not made changes? Mm -hmm. We're supportive of a, a, a land a, a land value system for that. We know um, the the uh, bans etc. Are, are out of date, and we know the challenges that that presents. Um, and then I think the other question and the other issue that I do have as a Liberal Democrat in relation to the Scottish Government and the way the SNP um, uh, organise themselves, and maybe this adds into my previous question, your previous point about Police Scotland as one forces, there is a tendency to centralise uh, to one uh, to one function or centralise uh, responsibilities to, to one area. And I think there are um, areas where local authorities, for example, should be getting devolved powers for business rates because potentially what is needed in St Andrews or Leven is different from what is needed in Edinburgh or Glasgow. Um, and that would be, you know, those lo local authorities give, give them the power to determine that. And then I do think there is that, you know, if we think about the UK from a purely fiscal perspective and it's about pooling and sharing of resources, I think, you know, you have to think about where is the best place for powers to lie. So I do think in terms of VAT or corporation tax, those should sit within Westminster because we are seeing some of the challenges where divergence creates 
creates problems or potentially creates a fiscal flight. And so I think we have to be very, very conscious of that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, another um, big uh, issue. Um, the, the nature mind is, is obviously housing, and um, in in Scotland, um, we're seeing a, um, a a rent cap has been introduced uh, for those who are who, who are renting properties. Do you think that this will have a um, positive effect for renters? And how far do you think that it could and, and should be? Um, left? Do, do you think that it, it, it's only ever going to be something that yeah. can, as a temporary measure, or, or do you think it could be? Yeah, well, I think I, I revert to, you know, my colleague, my MSP uh, colleague who represents North East Fife as well, mm. Will, Willie Rennie, he spoke in that debate. And I think that legislation is well intentioned, mm. but I think we have to be very wary of unintended consequences Mm -hmm. from it. It is obviously uh, great, particularly at this time from a cost of living perspective for Mm -hmm. existing renters. But what does that mean for people who are trying to get onto the housing market? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've mentioned St Andrews already. I think that is, you know, St Andrews is a very interesting, uh, from a housing perspective, Mm -hmm. very interesting place because uh, uh, we've got, um, obviously, the home of golf, uh, it's a tourism hotspot. We've got students, a number of, uh, you know, St Andrews is sort of unique as that university in a town mm-hmm. and the housing pressures that, that that creates. And the reality is, is there is no one right answer. You always need that kind of right, the, the right housing mix. And so there is, I do have a concern that sort of legislation about round houses, multiple occupation, short term mm-hmm. lets, rent increases actually means that we end up with not the right balance to respond mm. to some of some of those challenges where I think you know um, there were a nu- there's been a number of places in Scotland where students have failed to secure accommodation for the start of their studies this year and I do yeah. think part of that has been a contraction of the uh, of the, the the rental market now that's mm-hmm. not to say I don't think universities should be doing more if they're offering places to students they should be you know ensuring that they've got the accommodation to meet those requirements but um you know what people do and certainly when I think back to my own uh, time at university and what, what, what they choose to do within in the rental market we've got to ensure that people have a degree of choice so mm-hmm. um yeah I, I think I think I'm pleased that legislation is for a limited period of time and I think the right assessments need to be taken uh, underway uh, while, while it's in place but mm-hmm. I, I can absolutely see how and you know for, for all that I've outlined some concerns that there you know my colleagues in Holyrood did support up Mm-hmm, absolutely. And of course, um, in, in Scotland as well, one of the other great issues related to housing is holiday lets. Do you think mm-hmm. that that is that something that you've particularly come across as a constituency MP? I mean, what yes, are feeling for St Andrews, that? absolutely. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm saying in terms of, you know, one of my concerns around houses of multiple occupation is that we've probably ended up in a position in St Andrews where we have some houses where they could have more than, um, you know, three or more more students in that property, mm-hmm. but a cap on multiple uh, MHO, MHO uh, licences has meant that we have properties in the town where we have basically locked doors. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, um, and as well as that, because of some of the requirements for those licences, people have moved to short to short short term lets. Mm-hmm. And um, as a result, as always with these tourist areas, you need people in the local economy there all year round contributing and what is and, and, and what is that that balance? Yeah. Um also the East Nuke 
in Northeast Fife is, I think, second only to Cornwall in the Lake mm. District in terms yeah. of uh, number of second homes. And so that creates its own challenges as well in terms of public uh, public services. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Um, just in terms of um, independence, that's, of course, an issue that is and will be continually debated um, in Scotland. How much of a, 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 a feeling do you have that there is going to be uh, an independence referendum soon or do you think it's something that the SNP will merely bring up every so often as you know a, a core part of their agenda yeah I mean it's their it's their raison d'etre isn't it I mean yeah. I have to say I continue to be a bit perplexed by the Greens because I didn't think that independence was 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 their raison d'etre but uh, no I understand why you know they, they continue to call for it I suppose um where we have got to is is um, post-2014, the extremes have become more extreme and they've become louder. Mm -hmm. It feels that we are more divided than we have ever uh, than we have ever been. And, you know, back in 2014, Sturgeon and others were talking about, you know, not seeking a second referendum or another referendum until things had changed significantly. Now, you might argue that Brexit, etc., has produced significant change, mm -hmm. but what we've not seen is the movement in the polls. Mm -hmm. I mean, I wouldn't, you know, I don't think anybody could deny if we were consistently seeing support for independence in excess of 60% that a referendum wasn't the right thing to do to, mm -hmm. to confirm that settled will of the people. But actually, I think what we've seen from Brexit is narrow results mm -hmm. don't, don't help anybody. Yeah. And... Um, and I think what has been disappointing to see is, is in terms of additional information that the Scottish government has produced recently in relation to its independence papers, actually gives less information than previous years, than more. Um, its most recent economics report is basically um, the Growth Commission report uh, without the with, without the data. And, mm -hmm. and I think surely one of the lessons of Brexit needs to be a degree of honesty in terms of what the initial difficulties would be. You know, it's not a question of can Scotland be independent? Of course it can. The question is, is should and is actually that the best way to deliver the outcomes that I think across this political spectrum? Mm -hmm. You know, my husband's a member of the SNP. I've, I've talked about this many times. You know, how do we manage? Well, you know, we managed for 19 <laughs> years, but, but part of it is that we actually want a vast majority of the, the same things. We just have a different idea of how you get there. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, I think it is, you know, a real shame that the the uh, debate has has become as, as, as toxic. It is, it's one of the reasons why I'm not a flag, not a flag fan and don't feel particularly comfortable in, 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 in well, never felt comfortable in terms of that unionist, unionist aspect. I just genuinely believe as a liberal internationalist building bridges not creating uh, not creating boundaries and you know there is a failure to answer some of the key questions I think independence arguably becomes more difficult as a result of Brexit not less. Mm -hmm, absolutely um, I'd like to turn now to an, an issue that is um, not just implications for Scotland but but wider implications across the UK um, which is carers. Um, carers yeah. often receive very little support from the government uh, despite helping family members or loved ones how do you think we can better support them and ensure that um, if, if people wish to remain at home, but with the support of, of carers that they, that they can do? Yeah. Uh, well, you, you must have known that this morning I saw my carers leave bill uh, pass its 
build committee uh, stage in Parliament mm -hmm. this morning. So um, the, I'll just tell you a little bit, bit more about that. So it is, you know, it was in the government's manifesto. Uh, they consulted post the election in relation to it. And um, they just haven't moved forward with it because they haven't brought forward the employment bill that they promised, uh, you know, we've been waiting for it in the three Queen's speeches that, that, that we've seen. Um, so an opportunity to take a piece of legislation forward when I came out of the private members bill ballot that would get government support, despite the fact that Liberal Democrats policy is for paid uh, leave. Mm -hmm. So um, I think this is a start. It will be the first time that on the statute books, um, unpaid carers will have the right to request time off from their employers for all that it, it, it is unpaid. And so that will help in terms of balancing um, you know, those caring responsibilities. Because what, what we do know is, is that working carers either um, take annual leave, take sick leave themselves. Um, you know, some have have supportive employers. I've spoken to many of them who, um, you know, go their policies already go above and beyond and they can make it work. But we do see a lot of people who leave the workplace because of their, their caring responsibilities. In fact, when I was talking about my bill um, locally, trying to find constituents who could actually directly benefit from the bill was quite tricky because actually we had a no number of carers get in touch with us who were, um, who had who had given, given up work. So mm. that's a start. But I think the other big bits for me are um, carers' allowance. Um, I heard in the debate this morning has only increased by about £15 in the late last 15 years. Um, there, it, it can impact on the benefits of the person you're caring for. Um, it's, um, you, there's a cap on the amount that you can work before you start to the amount you can work before you start to lose your carer's leave. So change that so people can work more before they lose it. I mean, we've got an, an economically inactive population of an excess of 20% now, mm. despite such a tight labour market. So we need to think about how we encourage people into the workplace. And then I think it is just simple bits like people recognising that they're carers. I mean, lots of people don't think about it because often it's doing things for, for loved ones. Um, we need to ensure that social care is, is, is better than, than it is. And, and that is an issue, a chronic issue across mm -hmm. the UK. And from a caseworker perspective, it's something I deal with. And, and, I, and I think we need to think about some of the local services that might better uh, support. Um, I've done a lot, of, you know, being well engaged with Fife carers, mm -hmm. young carers, because that's the other thing in terms of young carers, out of school, not necessarily getting the opportunity to learn the skills that would even get them into work in the first place. Um, yeah, the, the, I think the estimate of how much carers do uh, and what the value of that would be to uh, the economy is just is is just incredible. And and um, you know people don't do it for for pay or recognition; they do it because they care. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Um, now we've touched a, a little bit on. Um, the cost of living crisis, we've mentioned it briefly, but in terms of the cost of living crisis, how do you think we can support uh, low income families and those who are out of work in the most effective way? Now, obviously, one of the things that has been discussed a lot has been benefits rising with inflation. Do you think that that's something that we could do or, or there are other things? What, what, what do you think would be the best thing yeah. to, to do? It's interesting. I was in a debate yesterday about the triple lock. It was a Labour, Labour mm -hmm. opposition uh, day and we are consistent about the triple lock and about uprating benefits in line with inflation. And important to remember that, you know, that uprating has already slipped behind uh, because of decisions made by the government. So this isn't even about helping people keep up with the rate of inflation. They're already uh, behind in the first instance. And there's absolutely no doubt as well as that, that the loss of the £20 a week from universal credit, there's some very clear food 
bank figures that show that food bank use fell while the £20 a week was in place and is now increasing again, um, as well as the fact that there was no support um, for, for legacy uh, benefits. I think one of the other hidden things that are is a lot around uh, government deductions from benefits, particularly government deductions. Mm -hmm. And the amount of deductions that take place where it's the government who have made the mistake in terms of the overpayments, I have to say, I've, I've found it quite, quite shocking. But um, it does feel that, yeah, I, I had hoped one of the potential positive outcomes of COVID you know, because you have to look at okay, what you know, what what have we learned from that? Was the fact that there would be people who had come into contact with the benefit system for the first time, and would have an appreciation of um of the system and and its complexities, and 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 I do think within the general public that is there, but I do think from a government perspective there's a just a lack of understanding that universal credit for example is an in-work benefit for, mm. for for many and um that actually um we need to provide uh, we need to provide better support we need to make systems simpler and easier to use we need to cut fraud and uh yeah we need to just be more more more, more compassionate i am chair of the co-chair of the appg for ending the need for food banks and we've been doing, we've done a, a couple of visits, particularly when we're up in Northeast Fife, the sort of rural poverty premium. Mm -hmm. you know, how much does it cost to take your bus to the job centre? Um, you have to go and shop at the co-op or, you know, the, in, or the other shop in the village that, you know, isn't as cheap as some of your big, your big cost cutters, etc. And um, yeah, you know, food banks are beginning to see reductions in their donations because the people who previously donated to food banks are now struggling themselves. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, it is not the safety net uh, that, that it was. And it does feel like we need to look properly at what is, you know, what is what is the level of benefits that allow people to, to you know, to not be in poverty or, or, or destitution. And, and it's the same for pensions. Um, I did I did some quoting from the Pension Saving Lifetime Association yesterday in relation to, um, you know, what they assess the state pension needs to be um, to, you know, to to expect a, a standard of living. And, and uh, you know, that that's what we should be aiming to write. Because I think if you do those things, then people are much, not pensioners, obviously, but people who will be able to return to the workforce will be better placed to be able to do that. Mm -hmm, absolutely um we're coming towards the end of the podcast wendy it's been great to have you on but i do have one final question for yes. you um it is coming on us soon we will soon be uh, in, in about in about a month or so entering the festive season so my final question to you is this if you had to buy a christmas present for ed davy keir starmer and rishi sunak what presents would you buy for each of them um, I, so I'm probably going to be quite rude here. There's a there, there's a um, website called uh, Holy Flaps, and they do quite rude and irreverent uh, mugs and cups and things like that. And um, I have threatened to buy for Ed's chief of staff one that says, you know, basically I'm not a control freak, but you're doing it the wrong way. Um, a bit ruder language than that. So I think I would probably find appropriate mugs for Holy Flaps. <laughs> from from them, other retailers are are available, <laughs> and, and in an MP's office, you always need mugs. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that those sound like uh, fantastic gifts, and I'm sure each of them would uh, would most appreciate um, receiving a uh, book like that. Thank you uh, once again for coming on the podcast, Wendy. If people want to find out more about your work as an MP and more about um, your your work. Uh, in the Liberal Democrats, where should they go to find out more? Uh, yeah, so uh, social media is probably the best place, but in terms of if you're a constituent or need help, it's wendy.chamberlain.mp at parliament.uk, but on social media and Twitter, I think it's at wendychamberld, and you will find find me there. Excellent. Thank you once again for coming on the podcast. Lovely. Thanks. Thanks, Well.